you would turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, you can read verses 20 through 27. That's the first time I've ever heard anyone's Bible go off <laughs> during a worship service. Seems like the Bible should be going off all the time. <clears throat> it's a privilege um, to read and to preach God's Word. Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. While I was speaking, Daniel says, praying, Confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seven weeks were decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and it shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood and to the end there shall be war desolations are decreed and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator simple enough let's, uh, let's pray together father we do indeed give you thanks that you have revealed your word to us you've revealed your character to us your good deeds, your grace and your glory. You reveal to us what you expect of us. You've given us your holy law. You've given us a peek into the future. You've given us uh, an understanding of the past. You help us to have insight into our own minds and hearts, knowing that uh, it is a deep well that is very difficult to understand what we're drawing out of. We pray, Father, you continue to use your word, that living word of God that speaks to us continually by the power of your Holy Spirit to bring us wisdom from heaven, to bring us the understanding and mind of Christ Jesus. Praise well, Lord, you give us the, the power to, again, appropriate everything that's here and uh, use it for your name's sake, for your glory, for the good of your church and the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. I always enjoy hearing stories about how particular passages of Scripture are used to encourage the saints throughout the years. And uh, this particular passage was a very pivotal one in the role of a man named Philip Doddridge. He was an 18th century minister and a hymn writer. 
1751, he was near the end of his life. He was uh, only 49 years of age, but he was dying of consumption. And uh, one morning, a friend of his came into his sick room to check on him in one of the last days he was still alive. And uh, he found Philip weeping over the Bible as it lay before him. And it was on this passage that he was reading. And uh, he had just finished reading the particular verses about the angel Gabriel coming to answer Daniel's prayer and to tell him that he was greatly beloved by God. Knowing that uh, Daniel was sort of the end of his life and, and now Philip was at the end of his life, knowing that the Lord indeed was hearing his prayers of desperation, wanting to see that glorious golden promise of God come to fruition, knowing that God does indeed hear our prayers and comes to us in our time of need. But if you remember from last week, I'm going to give you a little bit of catch up for those of you who weren't here. And for those of you who don't remember every single word that I say, because I certainly don't. Um, Daniel had been studying the book of Jeremiah. At, at the beginning of this chapter, Daniel chapter 9, he had been studying the book of Jeremiah and had come to the realization that at the end of 70 years, the people of God would be allowed to return back home. Right. So we had discussed chapters 25 and 29, uh, where it explicitly says it'll be 70 years of the time of, of exile in Babylon, and then God's people will return home. And so Daniel in his mind had an understanding, as most Jews at that time would have, at that, that time that somehow God was going to raise up some sort of conqueror, some sort of savior, Messiah, who's going to come and bring them out of there and bring them back to Jerusalem and, and usher in the golden age, usher in the kingdom of God, if you will. Uh, but as we pointed out last week, much of Daniel's prayer was also filled with prayers of confession or sin. Because he's, he sees that even if God's people to were to return home, they don't seem ready to receive this king. They don't seem ready to serve their God because they have broken his covenant, broken his law time and time again. So Daniel was mourning over their sin, over the hardness of heart, knowing that truly the Jews are still a proud and stiff-necked people who refused to take God's yoke upon them. But even though Daniel was concerned about them, he was even more concerned about God's name and God's name had been wrapped up in his reputation with theirs, with Israel, because he allowed Israel to be taken captive, because he allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed by their enemies. Uh, no one was really praising God's name. Uh, no one was giving glory to God. And so now his, his emphasis is on God's holy hill, as, as it says in verse 20. This is what Daniel's concern is. He wants to see God's holy hill be magnified, because if that holy hill is magnified, then God himself is magnified. So Daniel's desire in all of this is that God's people would be able to return to God's place. They would again build the temple so that all the Jews could worship God aright and then invite all their Gentile neighbors to come and worship him as well. So all these prophecies that Daniel had been reading in Jeremiah and Isaiah of Jews taking Gentiles with them into the temple of God and all the peoples of God, all the nations are serving God together. This is his this is his hope, this is his desire, this is what he's been reading. And yet, uh, instead of seeing every knee on earth bowing before God's holy throne, um, Daniel just sees a, a people who don't even want to worship God themselves. And so there are really three different prayer requests here that are wrapped up in Daniel's prayer. Uh, one is, is he's expecting that uh, God's people will return home soon, probably within weeks or months. 
that in addition that the Messiah would be revealed and that this golden age would be ushered in. But again, unlike Simeon in the New Testament, who had been longing for this Messiah to come, Daniel does not have the opportunity to hold the Messiah's arms. Right? Daniel never sees the Messiah with his own eyes prior to his passing. He has grand hopes and aspirations and, and, and longings for this Messiah to come, but never sees him. And so the angel comes to tell him more of the future that he doesn't quite understand, that not all of these, not all three of these prayer requests are going to occur at the same time. And so I've used the illustration, I probably have beat it to death by now, but I still say it to you to help you understand that really the, many of these prophecies, they, they're all jumbled together. A lot of these different events are going on at the same time, but they're not all happening at the same time. All, they, they will not all occur at the same time. So I, I mentioned the illustration of the three mountains in the distance. It looks like when you're far away that all three are exactly the same distance from you, but when you get closer up to the first one, you realize the other two are farther away. And then in this case, Gabriel, who comes to reveal to Daniel the, the fullness of the revelation, is saying one is much farther away and the third one is even farther than that. It's not all happening at the same time. So Gabriel, the, the angel that Daniel had already seen in his dream before in Daniel chapter 8, uh, comes to bring him some good news. And the good news is that God is answering his prayer and that indeed uh, he answers it quickly. Verse 21, Daniel says that the angel comes to him in swift flight. He's coming quickly to answer his prayer. And verse 23, when Gabriel is explaining uh, that it's at the very moment that Daniel even began his prayer that God had already sent Gabriel to answer. So even before he fully finishes his sentence, if you will, God is already sending out the answer to his, his request. Uh, saying because he's greatly loved. It, it, it makes you wonder why was Daniel so greatly loved? I think that that's a great question to ask because <clears throat> generally if God loves any of us, it has to be by his own grace and mercy is of sovereign will, right? It's not because Daniel was a perfect godly man that, that God's going to love him for that reason. No, God has mercy upon him just like he has mercy upon us. But at the same time, once the Holy Spirit has moved on us to, to believe God and to repent of our sins, then at the same time we begin to, to grow in our love for the Lord and grow in our understanding of God's love for us and grow in that fellowship with God where there is a deeper love between God and his people. And that seems to be the case here with Daniel. In fact, it reminds me of the passage, if you remember, in John chapter 14, verse 21, where Jesus says to his disciples, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, it's not that one person is just more righteous than the other, and he naturally loves God, none of us do. Right? The scripture makes that very plain. None of us love God like we ought to, but nevertheless, as Daniel is growing in his love for the Lord, and God is pouring more of his love into his heart, God wants to even show even more of that love to him. And he's greatly beloved in God's eyes, and it gives him this manifestation, as Jesus says, I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is exactly what's going on here. And so as a result, um, the, the, the angel comes. <clears throat> and uh, it's interesting that, uh, that he says that, but there's, a, there's something very unique in this passage that is pointed out by a number of the uh, commentators, and it's well worth me pointing it out to you as well. Uh, Daniel's love for God can be seen simply in the time signature that he gives 
in helping to understand when Gabriel comes to him to reveal the meaning of the vision. Uh, if you remember back in verse 1 of this chapter, we're told that uh, Daniel was praying uh, after reading the book of Jeremiah in the first year of King Darius. So we're told that the year in which he's praying, but we're never told the month or the week or the date or anything of that nature. But then in, 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 in this particular verse, verse 21, for some reason Daniel shares the actual hour of the day. Uh, you'll notice that he says that Gabriel came to him in swift light when? At the time of the evening sacrifice. So we know that's a particular hour because according to the, the temple um, sacrifices, this would have been 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So we know the year that it takes place and we know the time, but we don't know the, the month, the day, the week, any of that, right? So why would he go from the year to the time? Uh, particularly, uh, as you know, I had mentioned, uh, maybe a couple, uh, it's probably been three or four weeks now, I mentioned to you the idea that uh, how they determined when they would pray was based upon the hours of prayer throughout the day. So Daniel's praying three times a day. Two of those times are when the morning sacrifice is taking place and then when the evening sacrifice is taking place. And so Daniel organizes his entire day around the hours of prayer. Right, so, so he knows exactly what time it is because the hours of prayer that are given. And, and that would make sense, but, but it ought to seem strange to you a little bit because Daniel's not living in Jerusalem. He's nowhere near where the sacrifices would take place, right? Not only that, but the temple was destroyed 50 years ago. Thus, there were no more evening sacrifices. And yet Daniel's still orienting his entire life around the sacrifice. Keep in mind that Nebuchadnezzar had changed his name to give honor to pagan gods, had trained him entirely in pagan mythology and magic and ritual and all these types of things, had tried to basically remove every aspect of Daniel's faith from him. And now he's almost an 80-year-old man, and he's still orienting his day around the sacrifice that he remembers when he was a child. Is that not fascinating? It, it really uh, made me think of that passage in Proverbs 22.6. Solomon says, train the child the way you should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. Certainly encouragement, I think, to all of us parents who struggle to be consistent in corporate worship and family worship to know uh, Daniel had everything ripped away from him, but something he had learned from the time he was a child was still ingrained in him so deeply. This is a big part of why he loved the Lord. Every aspect of his life was oriented around the Lord and his worship, regardless of what hour the Babylonians were calling him, regardless of what day the Babylonians were calling him, regardless of what week they called him. You know, it, it's interesting, I mentioned it before, you know, even the days of our week, Monday is supposed to be worshiping the moon, right? Thursday is Thor's day. You know, all, all, every day of the week is oriented toward a different pagan god, even in our culture, even though we've forgotten most of that in that sense. But, um, but clearly every day for him was the Lord's day. Every day was going to be something in which he was going to dedicate himself to God. Clearly there is a loving relationship between Daniel and his God. And as a result, you can see the angels ever so eager to come to him swiftly and to help him understand 
all this confusing <laughs> material that he has. Now, now again, compare that, compare that Daniel to many of his contemporaries at that time, because uh, even though Daniel is likely never going to be able to return home, he's, he's already way past the age of, of uh, traveling there, I think. Um, many of the young men who are in Babylon at this time do return home within a year of this prayer. And um, we see that they're nothing like Daniel. Uh, in fact, uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah give us a good picture of that generation as a whole. And Ezra and Nehemiah both are, are, are continually frustrated with the men. They're constantly working on the Sabbath day. They're not resting. They're not taking time to worship the Lord when the hour of prayer goes out. They're nowhere to be found. Uh, they're, they're constantly uh, doing anything but, but worshiping God. And then it says uh, particularly that um, during that time, the men were married pagan wives so that um, half of the men, it says in Nehemiah, had already married a Philistine wife an Ammonite wife or a Moabite wife. Here's the, here's the saddest part of it. It says, uh, because of these unequally yoked marriages, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 24, it said, half of the children of Israel living in Jerusalem didn't speak the language of Judah, but they spoke the language of Ashdod. What, 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 why is that significant? Because the scriptures weren't in the language of Ashdod. The scriptures weren't in the Philistine languages. So in other words, they, they had no understanding of the scriptures at all. This is the, the first generation that comes back to the promised land after God's great grace and mercy that were given to them. They had no desire to serve the Lord. No desire to, to pray at the hour of sacrifice. None of that. And so this should give you even more an understanding, again, why, why is Daniel beloved by God compared to perhaps some of these other things in that regard. But exactly um, what Daniel was afraid of, uh, of the people returning back to the promised land and really still not having heart for God, that's exactly what's happened. Right? So, um, and we see, uh, I've I, I said to you many, many times, Ezra and Nehemiah are both pulling out hair because they're so frustrated with the people of God because they're not acting like the people of God. Nevertheless, God does bring the Jews back to their homeland, just as he promised. This wasn't a conditional promise. He told them he would bring them back at the end of 70 years, and so he does. And now that leads us to one of the most difficult passages in all the book of Daniel, verses 24 through 27. So maybe we should just do that next week. Um, the funny thing is, these are words that are given by Gabriel to Daniel to help him understand this vision. Uh, sad to say, um, uh, the vast majority of scholars today are divided on just about every aspect of this vision. And literally, you can read ten commentaries and not have one of them agrees with another. Um, it's very, very difficult. One 19th century scholar, Old Testament scholar, his name is James Montgomery, uh, had this to say about the various interpretations of, of this, of just these four verses. He says, it's plainly, it's just a dismal swamp. He said, I can't seem to find what in the world is going on here, and apparently no one else can either. So that should encourage you tremendously. 
Um, but even as early as 400 AD, Jerome was one of the early church fathers. Um, he, he also was a, a linguist and a scholar of Old Testament languages in particular, and knew how to read most of this much better than I do. And here, here's what he had to say about the interpretations in his day. He says, it's unsafe to pass judgment on the opinions of the great teachers of the church and to set one above another. Instead, I shall simply repeat the view of each of them and leave it to the reader's judgment as to whose explanation ought to be followed. And then following that, he gave nine different views of what the men in his own day were saying. Here is the meaning of this passage. So, if you think the ancient fathers had a hard time interpreting we who are much farther removed in history than they were, uh, there's a big ditch there between us and them. It's even harder. We, any of us should have quite a bit of humility at the end of this sermon. So I say, anyone who disagrees with me, I don't care. I'm just going to say that from the beginning. Uh, save your emails for at least a day or two before you tell me that you disagree with me because I'm going to ahead and tell you I don't know the answer to all these details. I just don't. Uh, I think we can agree on the big picture, but even that, you might have some doubt. That's okay. But uh, reminds me of the Peanuts cartoon. It's one in which Linus is trying to interpret a, a nursery rhyme. And in the nursery rhyme, he says to Charlie Brown, the way I see it, the cow jumped over the moon indicates that there's going to be a rise in farm prices. <laughs> and Linus asks Charlie Brown if he agrees. And Charlie simply says, I can't say that I pretend to be a student of prophetic literature. <laughs> now, I know all of us are students of God's word. But in this particular case, none of us is an expert in prophetic literature, including myself. Okay? So we're all going to take this humbly. And if you have a different view of this, that's okay. I'm, I'm really hoping that uh, it will be encouraging, nevertheless. But it really is. There are a few passages in Scripture that even Peter would say, they're hard. They're just hard to understand. And if the prophets and the apostles themselves are admitting they're hard to understand, I think we can admit it too. It's okay. Um, the good news is that uh, the Jews, though, are about to return home. That's, that's the big uh, reveal, if you will, that the Gable uh, definitely gives to Daniel early on. The bad news is that the new covenant that Jeremiah had promised that Daniel was reading is not about to happen, at least not in the immediate future. And certainly the, the golden age is also not about to be ushered in. <coughs> but Daniel had believed that all of this was going to take place at the end of the 70 years, right? And so now Gabriel is telling him, no, it's going to be much, much longer than that. That's sort of the overall goal here. This is what he's trying to explain to him. But, but a number of questions immediately arise when we're reading these four verses. First of all, are these 70 weeks mentioned? Are they meant to be interpreted literally? Are they meant to be interpreted figuratively? Uh, secondly, are the, the weeks even weeks at all? And the reason why I say that is because in Hebrew it doesn't use the word weeks. It simply says there are 70 sevens. Does that mean week or does that mean some other period of time? It's not clear. At the end of verse 24, uh, there's a reference to a holy place, according to most of your translations, but technically doesn't say the word place at all. It just says the anointing of the holy, of the most holy. What is that? Is that a person? Is that a place? Is that something else? Yet we don't know for sure. Uh, even though, again, most of your Bible translations will put in place to make it say the holy of holies. What about the anointed one? There's, the anointed one is mentioned in verse 25 and verse 26. Is that the same person? Or are those two different anointed? people. Who is bringing desolation? Who is making this covenant with the many? 
who is the person that brings all of this to an end? Again, is this the same person? Is this two people? Is this three? I mean, how many people can you guess? Right? You can see why this would be confusing because there's not any more context other than this. You have to put a bunch of other passages together to make sense of this. And Daniel certainly would have had a better opportunity at that than us, at least in the original understanding, even though we have the benefit of history to go by. But again, I'm hoping to give you the big picture, even if I can't explain to your liking all the particular details. But here's what seems to be the big picture. The angel Gabriel is explaining to Daniel that the visions he's had, he's having are pointing to the fact that God's people will, will indeed return to the promised land in the immediate future. And then after that, there's going to be a longer period of time in which um, the, the actual building of the temple will occur. And sometime after that, the covenant will happen. Sometime after that, the golden age will finally be ushered in. But when will all of this happen? All of that depends upon what you think of the, the numbers that are used in this text, first of all. The 77s, does it refer to weeks? Does it refer to years? Or does it refer to some other period of time? I'm going to go ahead and lay out my cards for you now so you can hate me from the beginning. Okay? I personally do not think that Gabriel's use of numbers here are meant to be interpreted literally. Here are my reasons. In every other prophetical prediction in which there is a specific number of years given, it's very plain that God is saying, here are the years. I'll give you two examples. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, God reveals to Abram, who later becomes Abraham, he tells him that his offspring will be sojourners and suffer affliction in the land of Egypt, he says, for 400 years. He makes it very plain. No guesswork. This is how long you will be in suffering in another land. It will be 400 years, and then it's done. Okay? The same way we, we read last week, two times in Jer Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29, God tells Jeremiah very plainly, 70 years. 70 years, you will be in Babylonian exile. 70 years, you will return. Uh, same thing we have in a, number, a few other cases as well. It's given the, the very specific years. But that's not how Gabriel's speaking here. It doesn't say it's going to be 77 years. He doesn't say it's going to be 177 years. Instead, what he says, instead of being 70 years, it's going to be 70 times 7 or something. Whether it's that weeks, is that years, again, he's not very clear. Uh, but he seems to be making a point here rather than trying to give an exact date to let me give you an example. Uh, Matthew 18, 21. You remember in that particular text, Jesus had been explaining how to confront a brother who had sinned against you, right? Peter asked the question, well, so say we do that and he repents, that's great, but what happens if he does it again? How many times do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? And again, Peter says, seven times. And what does Jesus say? He either says 77 times, or he says, no, 70 times 7, right? Depending upon how your, your translation reads. Either way, whichever one that you have in your particular translation, is Jesus' point that your brother can sin against you 77 times, but if he sins against you the 70th time to hell with him, we're done. You can kick him out of your life, and you never have to talk to him ever again. You do not have to forgive him. Is that what he means? Or if it's 70 times 7, he can sit against you 490 times, but if he goes for one more, 491, he's done. No more. No forgiveness for him. Is that what he means? 
I think most of us would agree that's not what he means, right? In fact, if that's what he did mean, then it would contradict what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 about not keeping a what? Record of wrongs. Clearly, if you're waiting for the 491st time, you've been keeping a record of wrongs at least for a few weeks, depending upon how much your brother sins against you, I guess. But it doesn't, doesn't make sense. So in that particular case, Jesus is not using a number literally. You follow me? He's using it figuratively. But the, the figure is this. It's meant to be used as a comparison. Rather than focusing on the specific numbers, it's not seven, but 70 times seven. If Peter had said six, he would have said 60 times six. Or you know, whatever number he would have chosen, it wouldn't matter. He's saying, no, it's extrapolated from that hundredfold, whatever it is, right? Well, in the same way, I think that's what the angel Gabriel is doing here with Daniel. Daniel's saying, is all this going to happen at the end of 70 years? And Gabriel's saying, no. It's more like 70 times seven. But is he giving you a specific number? I doubt it. I think he's giving a comparison of terms. And again, I know a lot of people that have come from evangelical backgrounds of all stripes, including my own background, Anytime you use the word figure, that sounds liberal to people. It's not liberal. Not everything is meant to be interpreted literally. That, that's all I'm saying, so just be careful with that. But if you want to hold to literal, that's fine. I'm not going to, you know, I can't prove to you half the stuff I'm saying is right today. But every other week I can't, just so you know. But not, not today. But in this particular case, we go back to, to the text. Look at verse 24. There's six things that are mentioned that he says will take place at some time at the end of all of these things. He says transgression will be finished, sin will be brought to an end, iniquity, iniquity will be atoned for, everlasting righteousness will be ushered in, both vision and prophet will be sealed, and the most holy one will be anointed. All of this will take place at some point. He doesn't clarify when for any of these things. In fact, he doesn't focus on any of these things immediately because he's not saying any of this is going to happen immediately. But rather, he focuses on some other things that occur in the in-between. And that's what we're going to look at in verses 25 through 27. So if we look there, 25 through 27, those crazy verses, the angel is breaking down this longer period of time, 70 times 7. What is that, 70 times 7 what? It doesn't say exactly. But in that particular case, he speaks of a first 7 by itself, and then he speaks of a second period of time, a 62 7s, and then he speaks thirdly of a last seven. So if you add the seven and the 62 and seven, it's seven, right? Whatever that represents. Uh, but if you'll notice in verse 25, when he's speaking of the first seven, he's saying that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Now, most scholars, I would say, would agree that this first period of time references the going out of the word from the Lord's mouth. In other words, the Lord is giving the edict that his people can now return home to the time where the anointed one is raised up who allows them to go home will be during this first segment of time. Again, if you were to interpret it that way, as I think most scholars do, we're referring to the time of the edict of Cyrus in which Cyrus basically makes a proclamation throughout his kingdom that all of the nations can go home and return and worship their own gods, including the nation of Judah. Go home and you can worship your own god. And specifically in Isaiah 45, verse 1, God refers to Cyrus as his anointed one. So to me, this makes sense. From the time that God's edict goes out to the time that the anointed one's edict goes out, 
it's this during this first period of, of seven. And seemingly this would be the time in which Daniel himself would still be alive, would hear the glorious news, and uh, but all these other things are not yet to take place. Now, but then we get to the latter part of verse 25. If you look back there again, Gabriel speaks of a much longer period of time, of 62 weeks or 62 sevens, in which the city of Jerusalem shall be built up again with squares and a moat. Sounds like a medieval time almost, but that's that's not what he means. But basically, the the, the city will be rebuilt. The um, the protection of the city will, will be, be rebuilt, etc. But all of this will take place during a troubled time. Again, if you read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, we're seeing this. The Jews are being halted in their construction of the city and of the building and the walls numerous times. And we're also seeing them suffer persecution. And then later on through the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, all of this time is a troubled time. Uh, because they're still not having any sense of a hope of a redeemer whatsoever. But then in verse 26, at the end of these 62 sevens, it says, An anointed one shall come in the last week, or the last seven. This is the third segment of time. This doesn't seem to be King Cyrus, because if that were the case, he would have been long gone by this time, because that's 62 uh, long years or longer than that later. But rather, it seems to point us to the Christ, or the Messiah, literally the Messiah, the word Christ means the anointed one of God, right? So I don't think it's referring to the same anointed person, rather to two different anointed people in different periods of time. And specifically in verse 26, it says, this anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. Again, if you read this Christologically, which I think we're meant to in this case, meaning that Jesus does not inherit his earthly kingdom at this time. He's not ushering in the golden age of his kingdom because he's, he's cut off. But, but it's interesting, the language that Gabriel uses here in reference to being cut off is the same language that's normally used of someone who is considered unclean. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 20, Moses speaks of the one who's declared to be unclean as a person that shall be cut off from his people. Again, if you read this Christologically, I think this would mean that Jesus is considered to be the sinner, if you will, the unclean person. He's cut off uh, for the sake of removing uncleanness from the land which we'll get back to the removal of sin in the previous verse, but we're not there yet. But anyway, but in the second part of verse 26, Gabriel then refers to the people of the prince who will come to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary. Again, the, the prince here, I think, is twice that we, we, in the previous verse, there was the anointed one who's also called prince, and now this one, anointed one, who I think, again, is called a prince, right? So it's, it's two different people. But instead of a third prince, if you will, I think it's referring to the same one, the people of Christ, if you will, the people of the, the anointed prince, will come to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary. Now, how does that make any sense whatsoever? Well, it's the Jews who rebel against the Romans uh, during what's called the, the Jewish-Roman War. Uh, and as a result of that rebellion, everything is destroyed. Everything. Uh, from the destruction of the city to the temple. All of this takes place because they reject Christ as a Savior, and they reject the, the rule of the Romans over them. According to the history books, this Jewish rebellion began in 66 AD and ended in 74 AD. 66 AD is when it all started, but then by the end, everything is destroyed. There pretty much is no more nation of Israel after this. It's, it's gone. Everything is wiped away. Everything is desolate. Exactly as the prophet is describing here, everything is gone. But then in verse 27, Again, I'll just give you my view of this. Feel free to disagree two days from now. I'll give you a day off. 
Gabriel refers back to the prince himself, to the anointed one of God, saying that he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of a week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. Now, I will tell you a number of people uh, interpret this verse to refer to either Antiochus Epiphanes or to some other um, uh, enemy of God, I guess you could say, who has risen up and who is in some way um, you know, trying to put an end to the sacrifice out of an evil spirit, if you will. But I, I don't think that that's the case because of the word covenant that's used here. It says he shall make a strong covenant. Nowhere in history or in the scriptures do we see an enemy of God's people seeking to make a covenant with God's people to do anything of that nature. But rather, keep in mind, Daniel has just been reading Jeremiah. 25, 29, he gets to 31, and what is he hearing about? He's hearing about a new covenant that's going to be implemented. In this case, uh, Daniel is being told a strong covenant, a new strong covenant. I think it's referring to the new covenant of Christ. Luke 22, with the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood, right? Um, and in that case, he's, he's giving a new covenant during this this week, this this, this sevens that, that's been given in this particular way. And it's through the shedding of his blood that the new covenant would go into effect. And as a result of that new covenant, immediately the sacrifices and the offerings come to an end. That's what we see on the cross, right? Immediately when his blood is shed and he, and he cries out with his last breath, we see what happens. The, the curtain is torn in two from the top to the bottom in the Holy of Holies. There's no more sacrifices and offerings. Now, people will make sacrifices and offerings, but they won't be legitimate because there's no more need for a sacrifice and offering because Jesus has put an end to it. Through his sacrifice, because he was considered the unclean one, he put sin to death in his own body, right? It's because of the ceremonial laws then that the Romans are allowed now to destroy the city of Jerusalem and allowed to destroy the temple all over again because now it's devoid of God. God's presence is no longer there. He's no longer dwelling in Jerusalem. And hence, the desolation. This desolation has come. Again, it's not the, the, the golden age at this point, but something has happened that is a sea change. A strong new covenant has come and has allowed uh, God's people to have hope. But go back just for a minute to verse 24. All right. There Gabriel says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So I think this is sort of an overview of things that were to occur as a result of all of this. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Now what does all of that mean? Again, if I'm interpreting this Christologically, which I am, even though the circumstances seem bleak with all of this destruction and all of this desolation, what we're finding is that through the coming of this second anointed one, through the coming of this prince, that transgressions are put, are dealt with. Sin is finally put to an end. Not just the sins of Babylonians, and not the sins of the exiles in Babylon, but all sins are put to an end through this one person's Sacrifice to this one person's offering. Additionally, uh, there's some sense in which now everlasting righteousness is brought in, not in the fullness of heaven on earth, if you will, but, but at least in the sense that someone is declared to be righteous not just the minute that they've performed their sacrifice, but long after that. They're continuing to be righteous. They're, de 
that still seem to be righteous even though they've sinned. Why? Because you have the righteous one who's never sinned, who's now been, uh, who's now given his righteous standing to the others. As a result, it also says God will seal up vision and prophet, meaning there's no need for any new revelation because Christ is the final revelation. He is the final word of God. Everything has been revealed. Uh, this is all coming to fruition. All the promises of God are what? Yes and amen in Christ Jesus. No need for any new promises. No need for any new revelation. God would anoint his holy of holies, if you will. It doesn't say place in here. I, I personally think that rather he's anointing Christ himself as the holy of holies. Christ is now the one and only gateway to heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's only through Christ that someone is going to come and have peace with God, going to have uh, a relationship with God. But again, that still doesn't answer the question concerning the golden age, the restoration of all things. And here's why I think the numbers in these verses are not meant to be interpreted literally. There's only one other passage in the scriptures in the Old Testament that speaks of 70 and 7 and, and these, these types of numbers that are used in, a, in a, a, a very strange way and that's in Leviticus chapter 25. In Leviticus 25 there's a little bit of math work that has to be done similar to the passage here. Beginning verse 8, Moses says this to the Israelites. He says, you shall count seven weeks of years seven times seven years so the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the day of atonement and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. It's the only time I see where he's saying, okay, well, we want you to do some math work here. Count this, uh, this number of weeks, and then we're going to multiply by this number of weeks. And then after that, then something really good's going to happen. The same type of language that's being used in that passage in Leviticus, it seems to be the same type of language that, that Gabriel's using to explain to Daniel. But instead of using... The normal seven times seven, which would come to 49 and 490, that's a big, he is basically saying this is sort of like the super jubilee, if you will. If every 50 years there was a time of hope, a time of peace, a time of restoration, a time of forgiveness, a time of, of uh, releasing of all debts, releasing of all sin, all these types of things, if this would happen every 50 years, when is the final jubilee? Gabriel seems to me to be saying, all of this adding up, instead of pointing you to a particular year, saying all this is pointing in this direction to a super jubilee. And, and so again, notice in, in Leviticus, the jubilee is associated with the Day of Atonement. The, day, the jubilee begins with the atonement. After the atonement, there's peace, there's rest, there's releasing of, of debts, there's everything. The prisoner's released, the, the, the debtor's released, everyone gets to enjoy living in the promised land. In the same way, it seems to me that Gabriel saying to Daniel, after all of these horrible things take place, all these trials, all these tribulations, it's going to lead to this one who's coming, who's going to put away sin, and as a result, this super jubilee, this super Sabbath rest is coming. And this is the one that we're looking for. In, in, in fact, if you think about it, every other chapter that we get to where the prophecy ends with some figure and it keeps pointing us to Christ it's, it's pointing to the same truth over and over again in different ways where is this king when's he coming where is this lamb when's he coming where is this rest when's it coming and, and the passage that we read earlier that Mark read to us from the, the, the gospel of Luke Jesus is, is reading from another prophet from Isaiah who's pointing us in the same direction 
In that passage, Isaiah said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to pro proclaim good news to the poor. Speaking of the Messiah here, he says, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's the same thing as the year of Jubilee. This is the year, the super year of peace and rest and favor in the Lord. He's saying, Jesus then reads that passage in his own hometown, mind you, and says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. Today is the year we've been looking for. Again, it wasn't a specific year, I think, that, that God is pointing out. He's saying, at the end of all these things, this is when this is coming. I'm the one you've been looking for. And immediately we see evidence of that because he's giving peace and rest to people left and right. You know, come to me, all your labor, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He's casting demons out left and right. He's healing all these diseases and giving release of debt. All of these things are taking place all at the same time. Then, of course, after he's crucified, after he's buried, resurrected, and ascended up into heaven, the Holy Spirit then continues to show forth the work of this king who has come and fully implements this new covenant that Jeremiah's been promising where everyone has a new heart to love the Lord, to know the Lord, to serve the Lord in the fullness of, of the law of God, to do His will, to do His work. And, and all of these things, again, this isn't the fullness of the golden age, but what Jesus is saying on that particular day, it's now ushered in. It's now, at least in part here, the Christ has come, the King has come, and now there's hope. There's hope in the gospel. That, that's why we, we constantly, every day that I get up here and I, I preach, the reason why I can offer to you the hope of the gospel is because this is still the year of Jubilee. This is still the 50th of the 50th of the 50th year. It's a super Jubilee. It will continue to be the super Jubilee until finally Christ comes and ushers in the fullness of his kingdom. And then everyone has complete rest. There's no more sin at all. But in the meantime, the hope of the gospel goes out because now you can be forgiven of whatever sins you've committed. You can be released of whatever debts you owe. Whatever you have offended against God, any rebellion you have ever committed, doesn't matter what sin you have committed, you can be forgiven. You can be restored. You can be reinstituted to the people of God. All of this is, is wonderful news. This, this is great gospel news. This is, this is where Daniel is pointing us to. And we get to the next two chapters, which I hope will be a little easier than this last passage. But it's pointing us to the same direction. Each time, the visions that Daniel's giving us is pointing us to the same figure, the same person, the only Savior, the only name under heaven by which we all must be saved. His name is Jesus. Believe, repent of your sins, and you'll be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Amen? Let's pray tonight. Our Father, I pray that you would forgive me if I've uh, erred greatly in my interpretation and explanation of this passage, but I do pray, Lord, that all of us would at least be on the same page in reference to who Jesus is and the promise of His coming, and that we would place our hope and our faith and our trust in Him, in His kingdom, that we continue to long for that kingdom to come, Lord, that we would long for the one where that golden age would finally be ushered in, in which all of God's people are with him forever, and that God dwells amongst his people, walking amongst us again, better than the Garden of Eden, better than 
uh, the, the, the nation of Israel, but, but fully all over. Lord, that you would be at peace with us, that you would love us deeply, that you would allow us to, to come boldly before your throne in a physical way, not just a spiritual way, but that we would continually be in your presence in your temple forever, we pray. Jesus.